First Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yeah, just to paraphrase everything that Britta just read, it's that God has turned everything upside down. And it is so hard to grasp uh, what he's done. And so that's kind of why we meet every Sunday, to keep reminding ourselves that God has turned everything upside down. Because the world out there just keeps wanting to put it, I guess you could say right side up. But anyway, we'll, we'll explore that here in a minute. I want you to I want to ask a question. If you were on a deserted or a desert aisle without desserts... Uh, would you rather be stuck on that island until somebody rescues you with an arrogant Christian or a humble agnostic? Huh? I know my answer. Yeah. I mean, it's clear to me. I don't want to be there with an arrogant. I don't care what the second word is, but the first word disqualifies them for me. I think I know that for myself, and I think that's true of God. If I read the scriptures right, and I know there's questions here that would come up, because we all struggle with pride, and his grace is certainly big enough to cover that as if we give it to him. But God is always in favor, it seems, in Scripture, of the humble over and against the proud. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, think of Mary, and I mean, there's David, uh, lots and lots of examples of God preferring the humble over the proud. It seems like it's the one thing that God just can't abide is somebody who's, because if they're proud, they're, you know, they're kind of pushing in on him. And he's not proud. He exposes himself as being very gentle and humble. But he judges the proud. So uh, spiritual pride is probably, if there is a worse form of pride than just regular pride, it would probably be spiritual pride. It really hurts people. And it uh, hurts people people in the church, it hurts people in the world, and it hurts the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel which has turned everything upside down. So we're going to, in this series, we'll be in 1 Corinthians the whole summer, and we'll be looking at how the church has hurt people, how the first century church in Corinth hurt people, but then, you know, that wasn't the last time it happened, right? Am I right about that? It wasn't the last time. 
And I am, again, I'm without my clicker to advance these slides, and I don't know what happened to it in between. Oh, hey, right there, right where I put it. I will humble myself. I want you to see where Corinth is, and I'll go over here. This is where Paul is writing to, and Paul is originally, he's from this area, this is Jerusalem down here, and the gospel message has been spreading through Paul's activity, and this is his second missionary journey. He comes over here to Philippi, we have that letter in the Bible, Thessalonica, we have that letter, we have the account in in Acts chapter 17 of Paul speaking here in Athens, and then he goes over to Corinth, and he ends up staying there for 18 months, so he really knows these people. He knows their hearts. He's lived with them. And now, when he's writing this letter, he's in Ephesus. And as you know, the reason that we have uh, the letters of Paul is because the churches were all messed up. Their mess is our gain, if you can put it that way. So we have these letters that we believe, as Christians have always believed, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So roughly 55 AD, Paul is here in Ephesus writing to these people in Corinth. And uh, we're going to uh, look at, in, in this summer, at many of the issues that caused the problems that Paul was addressing. But today we're going to look at what's behind I, I, almost all of those issues, maybe not all of them, but you'll see this again and again as we go through the letter that they have a misunderstanding of power and also of knowledge. And then Paul uh, re-exposes them to the upside-down nature of the cross. And, and we, we need the same thing, folks, really. Um, here, just an example of what we're talking about here. Spiritual arrogance, and, or at least arrogance, maybe spiritual arrogance, if you're a Christian, I'll call it spiritual arrogance. Every time you say, I know I'm better than that person, that's a form of spiritual arrogance. So you may have said that to somebody who is driving crazy this morning on your way here or whatever. It's very pervasive within the human heart to think that you're better than someone else. And uh, it causes hurt. It really does. So there we go. Um, Let's look at at, uh, these. And I want to uh, read a bit here what Paul is saying and get his flavor, his style. He's a, uh, Paul likes to throw words out there that are extreme and wake people up, and he uses rhetoric. Rhetoric meaning, um, well, he asks here some rhetorical questions that the answer is obviously no to. They're implied. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world... Uh, of God, for instance, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. You cannot know God through worldly wisdom, is what Paul is saying. And he goes on in that fashion, and we'll pick up on that. So there's two, these two issues of power and knowledge or wisdom. Paul uses the terms interchangeably. We'll see that in the letter. So when I say wisdom... Uh, is the Greek word is Sophia, and Paul uses that word to it translated both knowledge and wisdom, and and power, and they're both in the root form. They are, um, we'll see this in our own world, but they are they produce ideologies, and what an ideology is is rooted in an idolatry. 
So idolatry, we're going to find that word idols are, are found here. And in the New Testament, idols are not, as in the Old Testament, made with wood and stone and objects that people were worshiping God with. They are things of the heart uh, related to things like Paul calls greed idolatry, for example. So we have idols all around us. An idol is any good thing. It can be your spouse or it can be your child, or it can be your country, or the military, or the political world. It can be any good thing that gets blown up and overinflated from which you get your identity and meaning in life from. It can be your job. So idols surround us everywhere, according to the New Testament. And we give in to them regularly. And Paul is saying to these two idolatries, which are what would be very base or fundamental or primary, he's saying the cross speaks into them. Okay, so that, I wanted you to hear that. And then in verse 22, he identifies power first as he's going to go after power and then, and, and then he'll go after uh, knowledge. So let's start with power. The Jews demand miraculous signs, and by that he means power. So let's start with that. The Jewish people have a thing, their head is turned by power as opposed to the non-Jews or the Greeks that we'll get to in a minute. Why would their head be turned by power? Well, their history is one of God. They've been formed out of God's power. And the great miracle of the Old Testament is the parting of the Red Sea, where they walked through and the Egyptians came in behind them and the water came over them. And that is power. That's, that is a power event. And that's, they remember that. And they're supposed to remember that. But so when they think of Messiah, who's going to set things right, they're now 1,500 years later, and they're a very small nation, and they're crying out to God to set things right. They're thinking that God is going to come with power. And they make that assumption. And when God doesn't come the way they think they do, they miss him. And this is the problem with power-seeking, is you can miss God. So when Jesus does come along, Jesus does many miraculous things, does he not? I mean, that's... And yet... The Jewish leaders come to Jesus on more than one occasion, but in John chapter 6, they say, show us a miraculous sign and then we will believe. He just fed 5,000 people out of two loaves and some fish, but they make this demand upon him. And in the Bible, it is not seeing is believing, but rather believing is seeing. You can see a miracle as a result of believing. And they, they refuse. So they're, they're kind of caught in this catch-22 thing there. But they're demanding uh, a sign or a miracle. Now, power is, uh, it generically, is not a bad thing. It's, remember, an idol is something that is good or maybe neutral, but it gets blown up into something from which when we seek after it, uh, we get caught up in it, we get our identity from it. And certainly with power, we see that happening all the time. But just to illustrate that power is not all bad from my own uh, life, and since it is Father's Day, and I am a dad, I want to tell you just a little story about my youngest son and I when he was growing up. His name was Sam. No, it still is. And I used, it's funny, I used to use this line in church, and I'd, I'd say, my son Sam, who shall remain nameless, but there you go, because theoretically he, I owed him five bucks every time I said his name. But um, Sam, when he was little, he liked to run around the house without a shirt on and show off his muscles, you know, little, little boy stuff. But as he got older, 
Uh, we got into this thing in the high school college years. He was still living at home. And uh, he would say to me, uh, Dad, uh, you're the man. And I would say back to him, Sam, you're the man. And we would kind of, we'd call it our getting pumped up thing we did together. And if, I mean, some of you who are dads, you, you kind of get this. You, and we would get, sometimes we'd take it to the extreme. And, you know, we'd flex and we'd take off our shirts. Sam, you're the man! Dad, you're the man! You know, we'd do the fist pump thing and pull a power saw, saw chain, you know, get things moving. And, uh, and then Patty would walk in and she said, you guys are nuts, you just need to pray, you know. And that was the end of that. We got uh, humbled. But, yeah, power, (laughs) power is kind of just part of living in this world. It's not all bad. It's it's who, you you make things happen through the use of power. The problem is when you uh, disassociate power from wisdom or character or the things from God. But power in itself is not a bad thing. And I know all of us have to exercise it every day in some form or fashion. So there's the, um, the problem is, is that we hurt people when we um, inflate it. Okay. So then wisdom or knowledge, Sophia. Power, by the way, in the Greek is the term dynamis, which, from which we get dynamite. And now wisdom is Sophia. And um, Sophia is a nice name that means wisdom, uh, if you're a woman. And... The Greeks were in love with this word, and they changed the world through their education, uh, their arts, education, the way they viewed life. The the world was Hellenized. That's the the way it gets described in history. Greek culture. But their education, their belief that education was a very positive thing, and we have that today, do we not? Isn't uh, Educators, tell me. I mean, those of you who graduated, don't you just hope that all that work you put in was for a good thing and not just a bunch of work? So we believe that if you, if you are well-educated, you will be more enlightened and that you will get ahead. And that is true, but there's some caveats here that we have to pay, pay attention to. The footnotes are always where the problems are, so here we go. Uh, the first thing is, if, you, if we remember in the reading here, that the world's wisdom is not the same as God's wisdom. That the wisdom of the world can't discover the wisdom of God. We need God's revelation. But the Greeks didn't believe that. The Greeks believed that if you just kept learning and you were wise and you kept growing in your knowledge and your wisdom, that you would reach the or you uh, learn about the logos or the reason, and that is where God dwelled. And so that was accessible to you through the educational system. And Paul is saying, "No way, Jose." in so many words. And remember, Paul was a very, very, very well-educated person. He's one, of the, he's one of the smartest guys around. I don't, I don't need to go there, but that's the case. So um, we have that problem to deal with. Yeah. Also, if you've noticed this, and if you read the paper, pick up a newspaper, and you might scratch your head sometimes, and look at this phenomenon. Really, really smart people with lots of degrees and letters after their name do really, really dumb things from time to time. Have you noticed that? Do you know that almost everyone, and I'm not trying to be cynical, but almost everyone in Washington, D.C. has some kind of an advanced degree. And I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm glad, and there's nothing good to be said about ignorance here, folks. We're not celebrating ignorance. That's a bad thing. 
but we have to acknowledge that there must be more than the pursuit of education. And, and that when you get your, whiz, your identity and your purpose in life from your degrees, you're setting yourself up for that overinflated balloon to burst and the idol to be exposed. Uh, talk to somebody in PhD programs and ask them if everybody behaves well. You'll, you'll, they'll laugh at you. It's really amazing. Lots of jealousy. Uh, lots of um, petty stuff that goes on amongst tenured professors and others, right? You guys all know this, right? You're, you're smart. You know this. Well, so... Uh, what Aristotle said, and I'll just borrow a little bit from Aristotle, I know a little bit about that guy, is that education and character development or virtue development have to go together. And that's not true in our age. We, we give lip service to it, but it's not true. Why, why do really, really smart parents, this phenomenon I've heard of, can't, it wouldn't happen here to any of you, but why would really, really smart parents help their children cheat in school in order to get better grades, in order to get into better colleges? Does that, does, is there a little bit of irony there? Do we focus more on education than we do on character? Uh, four years ago-ish, I met with other pastors with the principal at Skyline. She's no longer there, but we had good rapport with her. And she talked about this phenomenon of character. And she said that they had five, I can't remember what they were, they had five character development things that they wanted for every child that went through Skyland. And they were great. You guys would all say, yes, those are the ones we want for our kids. Honesty and, uh, I don't remember. They, were, they all sounded good, okay? But then she said, more or less, and these weren't her words, but this is how I heard her, that at, we, everybody likes it when we talk about character. And we do it, you know, on parents' nights and all the rest. But bottom line for a lot of parents, the bottom line is grades and performance. And they pay lip service to character. But what they really want is for their child to do well. By doing well, they mean get good grades and perform well in school so they can get into a better college. So, so theoretically, that gives you a better life. Do you see how the idol gets developed? Well, uh, I want to give you an extreme example to make the point here. And um, I want to begin by saying that I'm going to talk about Germany during the Nazi years. And I'm going to begin by saying how much I appreciate Germany because I don't mean to um, use it as a whipping boy. In fact, Germany illustrates something that I believe is in all of us as human beings in those years. But I want to say this, Germany is an amazing country that has only been around, the, nas- the, the, the uh, national state of Germany that we have today began in the 1870s with Bismarck and all that. So they're, they're, as a nation, they're only half as old as the United States, which sounds crazy because things there are much older, but that's when they were formed as a nation. 
And in those years, they have become an amazingly powerful nation, an amazingly influential nation, and an amazingly high education nation. If you do, if you do theology studies, which I have done, you always have to read these German names that you can't pronounce by these really, really smart people. And they are very smart. So I appreciate all of that. And, by, and also, we have a daughter. I call her a daughter uh, because of uh, the history that we have with her. Her name is Eva, and she lives near uh, Munich. And so we went to visit her, and uh, we love Eva. And so we came to her country, and um, she had spent time in our home. When we went there in 2003, uh, we asked if we could go see Dachau, right? It's right near Munich. And so we, we got it in the car. And I could tell right away that she had never been there, and she was reluctant to go. And she did not... It was very difficult for her. I, I love history, and I... Uh, there were things that were very haunting about that experience, and many, I know many of you have been there, but, um, but we went there. And um, here's the, the sign that's on the gate or over the entryway as well. Uh, work makes free, which would tell you that is an idolatry right there. That work, because you know, at work, uh, this is a slave labor camp as well as a death camp. And um, that's, but even if it, if work does not make free, uh, work is part of having a good life. But then we, um, the, what, what caught me most was the picture. It's no longer on the building, but this is written in German. And uh, here's the words that are on that translation. There is one road to freedom and its mileposts are obedience, diligence, honesty, order, cleanliness, temperance, truthfulness, sacrifice, and the love of one's country. Now, we had three Boy Scouts in our family, and that's pretty close to the Boy Scout oath, if I remember it right. I can't remember if it's the oath or the code or one of those things. So don't we all agree that those are good things? I mean, more or less, we would want all of those for, those are character things, right? We would want those for our children. We'd want those for ourselves. But Wanting those or putting them on a roof doesn't make it happen, and so we know that the story of this concentration camp. The thing that impressed me, I, I, I say impressed in quotes, but it really did impress me in Dachau is just how orderly everything was. So order, everything was really, really well engineered, skillfully laid out, and you could see how they, they had thought through the efficiencies of doing what they wanted to do there, whether it was in the kitchen or in the work that was being done or in the death chambers themselves, the gas chambers. Just very efficient, you see. It's, these are, I want to try to say, these are really smart people who had power, and it hurt a lot of people hurt, hurt, hurt a lot of people. And we can say, oh, that's just them, and that's just them, and that is not going to do it. it. This kind of stuff is always, at, it's always there somewhere in our world, if you're paying attention. And I, This is a, a footnote, but I was really heartened this week that uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, when they had their annual, their national gathering, they had a strong resolution condemning the alt-right movement in America that is anti-Jewish, has racism all around the edges of it, if not in the center of it, and has idolatry. Let's hear it for the Southern Baptists, those conservative brothers and sisters who were willing to do that, you see. Our world 
is not that different. So what does Paul say? He says you have to turn this world upside down and get out of your idolatries. And he proposes, it's not surprisingly, that we focus on the cross. That is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. Now before, I want to get this picture back up there. What do you notice about that picture? Is the cross there? How do you feel about that? I mean, honestly, I feel a little shame about it. That the cross is there. I feel, I feel bad for Jesus, I guess, too. I feel awful for the Jews. Think about them. What would they see as they see those words on that roof with the cross in the foreground? What would they think? Is the cross good news for the Jews? Paul says it is. <laughs> but if I were a Jew in 1942, I would associate the cross with people who are trying to kill me or make me a slave. And we just keep getting it wrong. We keep falling into these idolatries. The cross. Okay, so in the first century, here's what Paul talked about. The Jews who were focusing on the cross, or, or not focusing on the cross, the Jews who saw the cross, they called it a scandal. So this is different than 1942 or 45. They called it a scandal. And why did they call it a scandal? The Greek word is scandalon. I mean, it's the word scandal or offense, whatever you want to say. They called it a scandal because God, who is powerful, would never show up in the weakest place they could imagine. That's the cross. That's the place of great weakness, and God's not going to go there. And the Greeks, they call it foolishness when they see the cross. This is Paul out of verse 22, 23. The Greeks call it foolishness. And they say nobody, basically what they're saying, the Greeks are saying nobody in their right mind would come up with this story of God dying on a cross. Who could make that? You can't even make it up. That's what Paul's saying. And Paul, rather than defend himself on the basis of their arguments, embraces their arguments and says, yes, exactly. God did something scandalous in in terms of human wisdom. You'll never learn this stuff in school. It is only revealed by the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to next week. It is only revealed by the Holy Spirit. It is a place of shame and a place of foolishness. And that's what God did, and that's what God planned to do from the foundations of the world. Embrace it. Don't fight it. Embrace it. That's Paul. So, here's here's the closing statement. I'll give you an illustration. The only person that should ever be hurt by the cross is Jesus. That's it. I mean, it's the place of his pain for us. And when we use the cross to cause others pain, I mean, we are way, way, way out of bounds, and we have got idolatry functioning at a very, very high level. Now, we live in uh, the year where the cross, you know, we, we have our stuff to deal with, with the history of the cross. And. So I was, this is my story to close, and then we're going to pray. But Patty this week was with a group of uh, pastor's wives and women in ministry in Bellevue. And uh, one of them was from, uh, it's called um, oh, the ministry. Uh, anyway, I'll, it'll come to me. Jubilee. Jubilee. That's right. Jubilee Reach. And um, the woman there shared about a program they have that is designed to help the homeless 18 to 25-year-olds on the street of Bellevue. Did you know that there's roughly 60 kids every night on the streets of Bellevue who are homeless? 
We're talking Bellevue here. And uh, she has done the work of lining up Christian homes to take those kids in. She has a heart for that, and they're trying to do it. And, and it, it, they've got some, but the problem is a lot of these kids are from the LGBT community, and when they hear it's a Christian home they're going to, they don't want to go. It's, the cross has become for them a sign of bad news. Now, that's the world we live in. We all have a little bit of repenting to do. Remember back to that statement I said earlier, whenever we say we're better than somebody else, we have some repenting to do. So I'm just going to invite you to stand right now. We're going to pray together. I'm going to take us through a spiritual exercise. If you close your eyes and focus on the cross, if you would, the image, and imagine Jesus dying on the cross there. You're there, observing. And you notice, and this is what theologians will talk about, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. In other words, there's nobody who has an advantage. There's no one there with something that they've brought in their hand to say, I am better. Look at me, I'm better than somebody else. There's this general sense that all of us fall short. There's no special treatment. There's no ideologies or idolatries. They just get flushed out. And you notice that people are repenting of their sins. And that's part of what happens there. And I think we all know that. But then there's this, a lot of repenting over people's righteousness. Repenting over their looking down at others. Repenting over the fact that they thought they were better than someone else. That they were more loved than someone else. That they belonged to some better group than someone else. People are repenting of that at the cross. What will you do? What will I do? What will we do? Allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart with that question. Lord, there is an, there is a power in the cross, in the blood of Christ. But it's not what the world looks for. It's not always what we look for. But we acknowledge that power to make us clean, to make us whole, and to give us life eternal. The power to defeat sin and the power to defeat our self-righteousness and our pride. The power to bring salvation and healing and peace. Thank you, Jesus, for the hurt that you took for us. Out of your love, we pray in your name. Amen.